Well, good morning. So thankful to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. We have the opportunity to, to hear from him and his word. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers, grandfathers, granddads, papas, fathers-in-law that are here with us this morning. And before we get into a time in the word, I, I just I want to share a burden that I feel about the men of our land. We live in crazy times. And it just doesn't seem to be getting any better. And in California this week, this past week, they were considering a law that likely will pass that will consider gender affirmation as one of the factors involved in custody of children. I, I have no words other than to say what level of insanity are we falling to? How is it that we tell an eight-year-old, you can't smoke, you can't drink, you can't have a gun, you can't drive, you can't vote, you can't join the military, but you can make decisions that will cause irreparable and irreversible harm on your person and your personality. Over the past uh, 30 years or so in our culture, it seems as if there has been a, an attack on men. We make fun of men in dads and sitcoms and in movies. We call it toxic masculinity, which is what, what used to be called just heroic behavior of taking care of women and children and providing for families. And so my, my heart is burdened this morning. It's challenged. Because I, I think that God's way still works best. As God has ordained that men be the priests of their home and that men be the loving, protective providers and spiritual guides in their homes. And so men, take up the challenge. Be countercultural. Be a godly man. Love your wives. Show your wives that you love your wives. Love your children. Raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Be the spiritual leaders they need you to be. Be the grandfather, stepdad, foster, foster dad, dad that children need you to be. And I came across a prayer by Pastor Philip Brooks who over a century ago put together a series of daily prayers. And he said this, and I think it's applicable for us as men today, but women listen in and, and pray for the men of your lives along these lines. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall not be a miracle, but you shall be a miracle. For every day you shall wonder at the riches of life which has come to you by the grace of God. Make God the focus. These are not new things. This is why church history is a good guide. The church was facing all of these same things in its foundation 2,000 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun. 
But as the church was faithful to be the church, to preach the gospel, to raise men and women, to be men and women, to raise children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, the Christians conquered the Roman Empire. Not through the point of the spear, that never works, but through the power of the spirit. And that's our hope today as men, as, as brothers, as Christians living in a country that is going the wrong direction. We're not going to win by scorn and, and anger. We're going to win by love and humility and patient service. And so let's be those kind of men before God. I want to encourage you to make sure your cell phones are turned off as we begin today as we're joining people online and we want to limit interruptions. If you've not taken a chance already, please fill out the attendance forms that are in each row. And I would like to take this time and to say good morning to those of you joining us online. I want to give a special greeting to Leo if you're joining us this morning. Thank you for stopping and saying hello the other day and letting us know that you follow us online. I know there are others that are joining us this morning, and I pray that wherever you are, you feel at home here as we study God's Word together at the Evangelical Free Church. Would you already be ready and turn to your Bibles? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. There was a very poor man known as a traditional holy man in the ancient land of China who lived in a very remote area. And every day he had a time of meditation, which was a common Eastern practice. And before he began, he would put a dish of butter up on the windowsill as an offering. It was thought that food left out would appease the gods. But one day his cat came along and ate the butter. And so to remedy this solution, he began tying the cat to the bedpost each day before his time of meditation. And this man was so revered for his piety that others joined him as disciples and began to worship just as he did, to the point that generations after his death, this, his followers would place an offering of butter on the window seal and tie the cat to the bedpost. Now we recognize that this traditional Eastern practice is without biblical mandate, has no connection to biblical truth. But what it does do is draw our attention to something that we all need to learn as we grow in our Christian faith and understanding, and that is the role and the place of tradition. The challenge of traditions confront every Christian generation of the church. And traditions can be something that is good, that serves us as a reminder of gospel truths, and keeps our minds and attentions on the things of God and the things we need to grow in. But distractions can also come about because of our traditions. For they may take on an importance they were never meant to have. And involve an emotional connection of the heart that would draw us actually away from God. Now the challenge of tradition deepens when there are traditions of Christian worship that in fact are rooted in scripture. Well we have others that we call good traditions that in fact start with good intentions, but over time become something that we serve instead of something that serves us. It deepens even further when we find those traditions mentioned in Scripture, but they don't necessarily give us all the details that we would like to have about how to recognize and remember them. And so we need wisdom, we need forbearance, we need patience, we need time to grow in the proper use of tradition. And if at times there are traditions, we need to let go. Well, in the passage we look at today, 
Jesus is confronted by a group of religious leaders over a man-made tradition that has taken on great importance in Jewish practice. And how Jesus responds to that challenge provides instruction for us today in discerning the proper and improper use and role of tradition. The final conclusion will be easy. In fact, I'm going to give away the secret right at the beginning. The final conclusion is that the Word of God is our full and final authority on all matters on which it speaks. It takes precedence over man-made traditions, personal preferences, and the, that's just the way we've always done it type of thinking. So as Jesus will teach us this morning, we ask him to give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive and minds to comprehend and hands that are ready to put into practice his holy word that he will open to us this morning. The passage that we will look at is Matthew 15, verses 1 to 9. And in honor of God, as he speaks to us through his word, I invite you to stand as we have the reading of our text this morning. And the wonderful, truthful, and holy word of God says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, These people, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is the word of the Lord. Let us receive it for its intended blessing. Please be seated. And let us pray. To you, O God, we turn now in these sacred moments, and we are thankful that you have given them to us. Father, what a privilege we have to sit at your feet and let your spirit teach us through the word that you've given us. And so, Father, thank you that we can trust you now to guide us in these moments, that we might hear from you, that we might see your word, and that we might be challenged to put it into practice. Lord, we want to hear from you. And we want to go away from this place knowing that we have spent time in the presence of the Mighty One. So would you guide us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not already done so, turn to your sermon outline or turn on the church app where you can take notes. And let's begin as we look at our study through Matthew 15 this morning. Our first major point is the confrontation. The confrontation. Now we see that there is a little bit change in the setting. For the last few chapters, Jesus has been dealing with the crowds, and he's been teaching about what's going on with the kingdom of heaven, what it is like, what it means to follow Jesus. And now in chapter 15, things are going to start to shift just a little bit. And so in the first few verses of this chapter, he's going to deal with the religious leaders. And then in the verses that follow, he'll begin to deal with some others, the crowds, the disciples, and draw them in. But as we get to chapter 15, the ministry of Jesus in Galilee is drawing to a close. In fact, later in this chapter, he will leave Galilee, where he will go north to some Gentile areas, 
And there he, after teaching for a while, will begin the trek that will bring him to Jerusalem, where he will suffer and die and rise and redeem a people for his glory. And so as we have this confrontation, we begin today with the delegation. And our text begins. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now let's review a little bit who these players are. We've seen them in the past, but it's been a few chapters now, and it's been several weeks in our study in Matthew, and so we haven't had a chance to hear much from the Pharisees or the scribes. The Pharisees draw their name from the Hebrew word, which means to separate. And so the Pharisees would actually be called the separated ones. And there was actually some good intention on their part. They wanted to be separated from the dirt and the sin and what they saw as the immoral behavior of the world. And they were especially concerned about ceremonial purity so that they could worship, they could enter the temple, they could offer the prayers and the sacrifices. Now they followed a strict interpretation of the law. And they had great expectations that others would do the same. And this is part of their reasoning. They knew that Israel had been sent into exile because they did not follow the law and had disobeyed God and had started to worship other gods. And in God's disciplining judgment against his people had sent them into exile. And then God in his promise had brought them back to the land with the condition that they would continue to follow the law. And the Pharisees especially were determined to see that that would happen. They did not want the people of Israel to go off into exile again. And they believed that, that if the day were ever to come where everyone in Israel was obeying the law, that Sabbath, or the Messiah would come. That was part of their thinking. So they were determined to get everybody to follow their way of understanding. But there was an irony here, and their zeal for the law, and their zealousness for righteousness, and their desire for moral reform, and the de determination that they would not again fall under the judgment of God, they failed to see the goal and the role of the law, which was to lead them to the Messiah, who was standing right in front of them. And so in their judgment and dismissal of Jesus, and handing him over to the Romans to be crucified, they brought upon themselves the very thing that they thought they were to avoid, which was the judgment of God against them and their land and their temple as they were, were judged. And Jerusalem was destroyed in 66 to 70 A.D. The temple was brought to the ground. That's the Pharisees. The other party present that day were the scribes. The grammateos is the Greek word, and you can hear the word grammar in there. They must have something to do with what is written. They were the teachers. They were the scholars of the law. They were considered the experts in teaching and interpreting the law in the first century. But unfortunately for them, they're about to encounter the, the true teacher of the law and the one to whom the law points. So this group is coming from Jerusalem. The Pharisees, the separated ones, the scribes, the, the scholars, the theologians are coming from Jerusalem. And so this is some type of official delegation that's coming to make an inquiry. And you might say, well, what, what is it that would cause this official delegation to leave Jerusalem in Judea to come north to see Jesus in Galilee? It must be because they're hearing about what Jesus is saying, about his teaching, his influence, the crowds that he is gathering. They're hearing about his disciples and what they are putting into practice and what they're hearing that Jesus is doing as he teaches about the kingdom of heaven. And so this group comes, 
And they come with the goal of testing the orthodoxy of Jesus. They want to see if he's in line with the ways of God and the truths of God. They come with this attitude of authority, and they're ready to confront Jesus. And of course, this is all preparing us for future confrontations to come, which will create a breach between Jesus and the traditional Jewish way of doing things in that day, a breach that could not be overcome and that will result in his Jewish leaders handing Jesus over to be crucified. So this delegation, as they come, their specific accusation is, you don't follow the custom. And so our text goes on to verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? So the key phrase here that we need to investigate is, tradition of the elders. Now, the, the word here is, in Greek is presbyteroi. It's the plural for presbyters or elders. You hear the word presbyterian there. That's where they get their name. They're de denominations that are elder-governed. The tradition of the elders was this developed system of man-made interpretations and man-made applications of the Mosaic Law. These tradition, this tradition of the elders started out as oral teachings that would be passed on from one generation to the next. Well, how do we interpret the law? How do we keep the Sabbath? How do we understand work? How do we honor our father and mother? How do we protect the widow, the orphan, and the alien? How do we deal with the stranger in our land? How do we protect the people that come within our, our domain? And so with each generation, as new situations arose, as new questions were asked, there would be added interpretations and applications of the law. And you can see then you have layer upon layer added in each generation, and the keeping of this law became more and more burdensome. And over time, these applications and these interpretations would move further and further away from the law itself and would focus more on the keeping of their particular interpretations, which they gave equal weight to just as equal as they gave to the law of Moses itself. In fact, for the Pharisees, these oral traditions were, were considered to be just as inspired of God as was the law itself. And so if we imagine the law, if we start a small square, the law is what's contained within that square. Well, they didn't want to violate the law, so they built a layer of interpretation, if you will, around that square, and then they say, don't violate that layer of protection. Well, then in order not to violate that layer of protection, generation after generation, they're adding more and more layers and more and more boundaries that became as important in the eyes of the Pharisees as the law itself. You can see the dilemma as they come and confront Jesus. Now, eventually, these oral traditions were put into writing. We call it the Mishnah. It actually didn't come into existence until about 200 years after the time of Christ, but they were well-known, memorized, and passed on from generation to generation. The Mishnah would be the official commentary and interpretation of the law. It was divided into all kinds of sections about how to live daily life. There'd be a section on work, there'd be a section on home life, there'd be a section on money, there'd be a section on land, there'd be a section on all kind of different subjects. So it wouldn't be surprising to you then that there was a section of the Mish Mishnah named Yadaim, which is the Hebrew word for hands. It was actually an entire section on hands. It had 4,000 words or more on the proper cleaning of hands to get ready for temple worship or offering of sacrifices. Very detailed on how water and the pouring of water was to be used so that hands were considered ceremonially clean. 
So the problem wasn't so much the washing of hands. The problem was the Pharisaic interpretation on what hands were clean and which were proper for worship. Well, Jesus, as we have seen already, if you look at the larger context, he did not go along with the program of what had become traditional Judaistic teaching in that time. Even look at the passage we saw last week where Jesus heals a large number of people in the region of Gennesaret on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It says he healed everyone that was brought. Certainly we could understand that there would have been many that were brought that would have been seen as unclean according to the tradition of the elders. And yet Jesus allows himself to be touched and to touch them. Moreover, Jesus has shown us already several times in the gospel according to Matthew that he overcomes impurity with his own purity. As we see in, for example, Matthews 8 and 9 where he touches and heals a leper. Or he drives out pigs, demons out of a pigs in a, in a Gentile area. Or he allows himself to be touched by an unclean woman who has been healed from her issues of blood. He touches a dead body and it is raised from the dead. In every case, Jesus makes clean that which was unclean. And it was his purity, his holiness that was transmitted to that which was unclean. And he himself was touched in no manner by the uncleanness of those with whom he came into contact. But as he was implementing this ministry and carrying out his work as the, as the, as the Messiah, he was not doing it according to the tradition of the elders. And so there's a contrast that's set between Jesus making the unclean clean, and now this group coming from Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the scribes, coming to accuse him and his disciples of not being clean according to their interpretation of the law. So they come with the question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why do they not wash their hands when they eat. It's really a question about ritual purity here and not personal hygiene. It doesn't mean that the disciples actually didn't use water and wash their hands before they ate. It means they didn't follow the rules according to the tradition of the elders. And so they're charging the disciples with wrongdoing, but they're doing more than that. They're actually accusing Jesus of being wrong. Because they would understand that the disciples are simply doing what their teacher has taught them. And it was no accident then that as a routine now, the disciples were doing things according to the ways of Jesus that were not according to the tradition of the elders. And so they attacked the teacher by attacking the disciples. They're really accusing Jesus of misleading people according to the law. So we ask the question then. This is not the first time that the Jews have come with this accusation. It won't be the last time in the, in the gospel according to Matthew. But was Jesus really against the law? Now remember we go all the way back to Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 and we see that Jesus gives the proper interpretation and understanding of the law and how he in fact is the fulfillment of the law. And then as a result, those that are in him, in the kingdom of heaven, who are living out the new covenant, living out the new birth, this is now how they can live. Jesus is not going to break anything dealing with the law of God. He knows he's been sent by God to fulfill the law of God. And he's certainly not going to instruct his disciples to go against God, but he will instruct them to go against the tradition of the elders. And for the Pharisees, that's the problem. 
why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? It's not a question of hand-washing per se, but it's the role of tradition of men. And so in their confrontation, Jesus will now bring the counter-challenge. It is true that there were those that required to have ritual washing of their hands before prayers, before sacrifices, before entering the temple. They were the priests. And there's very specific things that the priests were to do in getting ready for, for temple worship. But over time, the Pharisees had extrapolated that to include all Jews. All Jews were required to go through this ritualistic thing that they had added on to in their interpretation and their layers as they're adding on and on and on. And it, and it was in their interpretation was the only way then that you could have undefiled hands. And so in their minds, to break the tradition of the elders was to break the law of God itself. Do you feel the tension that's going on here? These religious leaders coming to Jesus, accusing him of breaking the law, but actually they don't say break the law. They say you're breaking our tradition. Uh, Jesus picks up on that. And so in his counter charge, he says, you don't follow the command. And he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't explain it away. Instead, he gives a great counterattack. He knows that what they're accusing him of, that what they're demanding of him, in fact, is not found in the law. So he answers with what the law actually does say. In fact, Jesus sidesteps the question of hand-washing here until verse 20 because he's getting to the main issue of the, of the situation, the main problem. Because did you notice that the accusation of the of this delegation was, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Jesus used that very same word to say, and why do you break the commandment of God? It's a brilliant counter-argument. Somebody's breaking something, what is it? Well, the one side, they're breaking the tradition of the, law, of the, of the elders, and the other side, they're breaking the commandment of God. And this would have shocked the Pharisees. This would have shocked the scribes. They were the ones who thought they understood the law, did the right interpretation of the law. They thought they were the ones who could sit in judgment on others because, after all, they were the set-apart ones. They were the holy ones. And yet here is this itinerant rabbi operating outside of Jerusalem who is challenging them. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues on, and he says, The command, not the korban that goes on in the text. Verse 4. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Just a couple of straightforward commands. The first one, the command to honor your father and mother, is found in Exodus 20 and repeated in Deuteronomy 5. Respect your parents. And you honor your parents in words and in actions. This includes not only blessing them, it would also include taking care of them when they are old. That was just the expected behavior of each generation of Jewish people. So this is the positive application of the law. Speak well of your parents and take care of them when they are old. But there was also a negative application of the law. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And this is found in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 20. 
Now, the word that is translated as revile here in the ESV is from the Greek kakologeo. It's a compound word. It comes from the word logeo, which means to speak or to say. And kako comes from the word poorly or bad or evil. So we understand then that kakologeo would mean to slander or to speak evil of. So don't curse your parents. Don't speak poorly of them. Now, we can discuss another time what, what, why this command was put in the Old Testament law. That why cursing of one's parents would lead to the death sentence. But in this context, the Pharisees aren't even disputing that. That's not the point that they're getting at. And we actually don't find a recorded incident of this punishment being carried out. But in any case, we need to understand why God would have said something in the original context. And certainly the keeping of a holy community and keeping social cohesion and the threat of violating that because they were a covenant community that was to walk in holiness with God, violating that covenant would risk penalty. But the main point here is that instead of following the commandment of God, the Pharisees are following the tradition of men. And so Jesus goes on, verse 5, But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. And the word here for offering or gained or given is the word korban. It's used in the Old Testament context of offerings, offerings that are given to God. In fact, Corban always refers to an offering given to God. But over time, with tradition, with reinterpretation, with reapplication, there became a type of offering where one could pledge his wealth and his property to God and to service in the temple. And once he pledged it that way, it could not be used for any other purpose. Now, the problem was the money would remain with the person until he died. And so while he was alive, he could use it for himself, but it could not be given to another person because it was pledged to God. And so you can see the mischief then that would come because of this. Children looking for ways to not follow the obligation that they would have to take care of their parents. Imagine a family having a row. And a son gets angry and makes a rash vow and says, well, whatever I would have given you, I'm now declaring to God. Or a son who's a little sneakier and just says, well, you know, I want to put on a display of piety. I'm going to pledge all my wealth to God and the temple, and then he doesn't have to use it for his parents. Maybe they think they're even doing the right thing. Sometimes people can serve God, think they're serving God for the wrong reasons. Now, not everyone acted with an untoward manner, but enough of them did that that is the argument that Jesus is confronting here. He's confronting this misuse, this misunderstanding, this abuse, as it were, of this law. Instead of following the commandment of God, they say, well, we would have helped you, but we gave it all to the Lord. And according to the tradition of the elders, then they didn't need to follow the commandment because they thought that was the proper application of that commandment. And so you can hear Jesus starting to seize with this. You've come to me giving this false accusation about what I'm doing with my disciples, all in the name of your tradition, when you're not even following the command of God. And so he brings in the conclusion, God's truth over man's tradition. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So there's a few things to notice here. The Pharisees should have known better. 
because if they claimed to know the law, they would know that the law itself made allowances for vows that were taken rationally or for wrong purposes. Somebody in the heat of a moment makes a, a vow with a hot head and a rash vow. They can get out from under it according to the law through the use of confession of sin and offering the proper sacrifice. So these vows wrongly using korban could have been made void by simply following the word of God that these Pharisees were pretending to defend. With your tradition, Jesus says, you make void the law of God. So we do well then to consider the danger of the traditions of men. Oftentimes they start out with something good, with a good intention. But with time, they can become idols that take our eyes away from Jesus to put the emphasis on man, whether in the actual practice itself or the importance that men place upon that tradition. With your tradition, Jesus says, you make void the word of God. They think that their traditions take priority because after all, they thought they were in the seat of the teacher. But God alone gives commands. God alone can bind the conscience by his holy word. We all have our traditions. Every one of us. We have individual traditions. We have family traditions. We have church traditions. They can be good. They can be bad. We need to make sure, however, that we are following the word of God, which always takes priority over anything that comes from us. Yeah, if we were to take the time to look in the Word of God, we would find that there are traditions. But even there, we need to make sure that we do, the, do them in a way that is honoring to the Lord and not struggle with Scripture and try to get out from under the claim that is given in those traditions. So Jesus wants them to get to the heart of the matter. Hang on here, I think I uh, jumped ahead. God speaks. There we go, okay. We'll just continue on. You have uh, the next major point in your bulletin is point three, right? Okay. I have, for the first time, mixed up the order of my pages. <laughs> now I have to get back to... So we get to the condemnation. So after he has challenged them with the truth of God's word over against tradition, he now gets to the condemnation. The Pharisees had raised their traditions to be equal in authority to the word of God. That's a dangerous thing to do to say, well, whatever we decide, whether it's a religious council, whether it is this sitting in the temple, that that is of equal importance to the law. It simply cannot be. We need to allow the law to interpret the law as God has given it so that we can do what he expects. And so they get the prophetic rebuke. The prophetic rebuke. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. Now imagine how this would have hit them. Here they thought they were the interpreters of the law and the prophets. They thought they were the ones that had the right judgment. And Jesus turns around and says, the prophets rebuke you. 
This would have been something that would have challenged them and challenged them greatly as they tried to consider how they would interpret the law of that day and how they would apply it. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word hypokrites. It means to pretend to be something other than what really is. It's putting on a mask. It's being an actor. It's being a poser. It's being a faker. It's putting on a pretense of something that you're not really are in your real life. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah speak of you. Now this comes from the, the 8th century in Isaiah chapter 29. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And what happened was in the time of Isaiah, eight centuries before Jesus, is the people had put all kind of traditions and customs to try to keep the law, but more importantly, they were trying to earn favor with God by what they were doing. They thought if we just do things in a certain way, we'll gain the favor of God. And so they were trying to earn his favor through their rituals, through their man-made customs, through their traditions that were not prescribed by the law. And they were ignoring the law, which said, put away idols, put away things that are distracting your heart far from me. And Isaiah the prophet has to rebuke them for it. And the result of that rebuke, because they didn't repent, was they were carried off into exile. So while Isaiah said, or Jesus says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? It was not directly of the Pharisees themselves, but it certainly applied to them and what they were doing in the first century. And anytime we want to go beyond what God has given in the word and the clear teachings, that weight might fall upon us if we seek to serve our own traditions and customs rather than the law of God. There is nothing that we can do to earn the favor of God. Nothing. The gospel is a gift from God. It's a gift from God from beginning to end. Once we encounter God and are born again by His Spirit, now we desire to fulfill the law. Now we desire to obey Him and to walk with Him. But even there, that doesn't earn us any favor because our salvation is always a gift of God. And on the last day of our lives, like on the first day that we're born again, we will be as dependent on the grace of God from beginning to end. All we can do is just obey lovingly with the desire that says, I want to please you, Lord, in all that we do. But the Pharisees missed it. Here they thought they were the main teachers of the law. And they missed it because the point of the law, the goal of the law, the destination of the law was right in front of them, and they missed it. And so Jesus has to get to the heart of the matter. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The heart of the matter is the matter of the human heart. And Jesus will bring that up over and over again. In fact, he's going to address it more clearly next week when we get to the second half of this larger passage, verses 10 to 20, where Jesus is going to talk about the external versus the internal. And it's not what goes into the mouth that makes one unclean. It's what, what comes out of the mouth because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it is a sure sign that what is on the lips has already been in the heart. And that's how we know then where people are at. The, Isaiah prophesied of you, we've already said, and they could not return his favor then, they cannot now. Do not follow the traditions of men 
to follow the clear teachings of God. This people honors me, Jesus said, with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And a man, or, a man cannot open his own heart, and a man cannot force the hand of God through what he may do. No, the Spirit of God alone is the one who is able to open the sinful heart, to take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. The Spirit of God alone is the one who can operate that new birth that gives life, that allows us to then see and to hear and to understand and respond. Because it's the law of God that binds our conscience. We cannot bind the conscience of God by what we do. J.C. Ryle was a great preacher from an earlier generation who wrote extensively on the nature of God and one of his famous works is The Holiness of God. It talks about the true nature of worship. And here's what he said. Let it be settled with us that in all our religion, the state of our heart shall be the main thing. And he goes on. Let it not content us to go to church and observe the forms of religion. Let us look far deeper than this and desire to have a heart right in the sight of God. We need the Lord, who is the creator and the former of our hearts, to work in us and stir us so that we have hearts that will love him, hearts that will obey him, hearts that will desire him, hearts that will long for him, because the heart of the matter is the matter of the human heart. And if our hearts are in tune with God, then we will avoid the warning of Jesus of vain worship. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. We all know the difference between worship that flows from the heart and worship that just comes from the lips. The word for heart here is the Greek word cardia, which means it's the center of emotional and religious life. It is the center. It's what turns the person to decide, to act, to believe, to want. Jesus is saying, essentially, the Pharisees are going through the motions. They're following their man-made laws, their man-made expectations, and therefore their worship is vain. It's not worship that will be pleasing to God. Now, in a different context, as Jesus is teaching his disciples about worship in John 17, he calls us that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth because the word is truth. We're to be called to be sanctified in the truth of God's word. And all that means that we need to be a people that are controlled under his spirit so that we understand his word, so that we become more like him and have worship that is honoring to him. That means we focus on that which is important to God. We focus on that which is truly given to us by God. We focus on those things that are created and given, not that we create and desire. The Pharisees got it all backwards. They kept adding things to the main and major things of the word. They added more layers of interpretation, more layers of application. And Jesus said their worship is vain because they're trying to worship according to their customs and not according to the revealed word of God. The worship here, the word for worship is the word sabo, which means to revere and to adore. So what's the opposite of to revere and to adore if their worship is vain? It's certainly not something that's going to be pleasing to the Lord. They were following their own traditions, what had pulled their hearts away from God, and they thought that by doing their own traditions that would please God, but God wants the heart that is fully drawn to him and not from the customs of man. 
As I was thinking about this passage this week, and I was realizing how easy it can be for us to fall into tradition, fall into routines, fall into habits, fall into patterns. And it's a reminder to us that we need to continually ask the Lord to stir us, the Lord to revive us, to lead us to repent and to confess and to continually cry out because we've all done it, but we don't want to do it. Well, you can come to church and you can sing the songs and you can say the creeds and you can listen to the prayers and you can shake the hands and you can walk away just as stone cold in your heart as you were when you came because it wasn't heartfelt worship. And so we see how needy we are to every time we come to say, God, do the work in my heart that only you can do so that we'll worship you in spirit and in truth. But the Pharisees were bean counters, as it were. They're just counting. Are you ticking all of the requirements of their interpretations and applications? Are you keeping those accounts and teaching, following their doctrines, which were not from God himself? So we need to make sure then that our traditions are not pulling our hearts away from God, from the true worship of God. We need to make sure that the things that we're teaching and doing are causing us to draw closer and closer to him. Sometimes our traditions seem good. They seem wise. Oh, this is the right thing to do. This will help us to avoid such and such and so and so. But the Spirit has come so that we would learn to say yes to the things of God. And in saying yes to the things of God and in service to God, we don't want to do the things that would draw us away from God. So it's not, it's not the law, but the Spirit that will allow us to grow. So the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the church in Colossae, he's warning them about adding things to the gospel to help it out. Adding things to the Christian living that actually just become man-made laws of legalism. And he gives a whole list in chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. And then he concludes by saying this, these man-made laws indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The law kills, the Spirit gives life. We say yes to the things of God led by the Spirit of God, and that we don't want to just promote a bunch of laws that we follow so that somehow we feel like we're doing okay with God. No, because we're okay with God in Christ, then we want to follow what he commands. When men are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then and only then are they able to serve God through the law. But they don't serve the law. We want to serve God through his word, according to his ways, and not add anything that would draw our hearts away from a pure worship of God. And that may require us to ask some tough questions. Because all of us by nature love our traditions, love our customs. We get a certain emotional attachment to doing things a certain way. And after a while, all we're longing for is to have an emotional experience or emotional feeling. But is that led by the truth of God's word or is it just something that we've grown to love? And that makes all of us shake at that point. And so we need to ask ourselves the tough questions. Are we worshiping God in spirit and in truth? And are we willing to let go of whatever it is that is actually tempting us to serve that thing than to serve the living God. Last century in the 1940s, there was a, a great archbishop of Canterbury by the name of William Temple. He gives a brilliant definition of worship. 
I think one that certainly fits in with what Jesus is warning the people about here in, in Matthew 15. He defined worship as the quickening of the conscience by the holiness of God, feeding the mind with the truth of God, purging the imagination by the beauty of God, opening the heart to the love of God, and devoting the will to the purpose of God. You see how it's all God-focused about what God is doing and what God wants to see happen and how God is working. It's not on what can I do and what can we do. And look at the words that are being used there. Conscience and holiness, mind and truth, imagination and beauty, heart and love, will and purpose. This is a whole person response to who God is. And as we grasp that God is drawing us and calling us to worship him truly, then we're able to worship him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because it's all led by him, animated by him, given by him. He draws us, he empowers us, he embraces us, he leads us. So let's do that hard work. And beware of adding anything to the word of God. Of trying to bind the conscience of others with things that are not clearly written in scripture. But maybe are our personal preferences or desires. Let's take some time to evaluate what we consider important and what we are doing. It could be that we're doing some very good things and we just need to be reminded why they're good and ha have our hearts purified to keep doing them. It might be that we have to let some things go because all of us have blind spots. As individuals, as families, as a church, as a community, we have our blind spots. And we need the Lord to help us to find where those blind spots are. So we can let the light of truth shine in them and say, yeah, I don't need to keep on doing this or that, but I should be doing more of this and that according to the law. And in all things, then, we let the word of God reign supreme. Not tradition, not preference, not desire, not decision. The word of God. And I stand before you this morning recognizing that there's things in my own life that I need to continually to evaluate own practices, things that I feel comfortable with. Am I doing it because they're comfortable or am I doing it because it's actually promoting holiness in my own life? And so I join you in that challenge that Christ gives us to worship him with our hearts, not according to traditions that we have set up, but according to the clear principles of his word. So next week as we get to the second half of this chapter, well, the second half of this Story is Jesus now will turn to those there and say, let me tell you about what makes us pure and un impure and unclean. What are some things that we can think about in the meantime? Well, because the word is supreme, we will examine all of our traditions and practices to make sure they conform to biblical truth. And that requires constant vigilance over ourselves, over one another, with the word of God open, with our hearts willing to receive correction from the Lord. Secondly, because the Bible does affirm some traditions, we want to affirm what the Bible affirms and not what we want it to affirm. We don't want to try to cajole God into doing it our way. We want him to convince us and show us to do it his way. Thirdly, because of the dangers of man-made tradition, we ask the Lord to search our hearts so that our hearts desire to worship God truly and fully. I know 
And in this room, we are full of people who want to worship God. And I also know this room is full of people who don't want to worship God in vain. And so we ask God to continue to do the work in our hearts that our worship would be pure and pleasing and worthwhile and growing and sanctifying as we gather week by week in this place. And lastly, because the word is true, we will let the clear teachings of Scripture determine how to apply itself, not our own preferences and our customs. We take off our own colored glasses as we come to the Scriptures, and we say, God, in Psalm 119 and verse 18, open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things of your law, and let him teach us what his word says so that we will obey it, love it, teach it, share it, and walk according to it. Let us pray. Father, I'm thankful that it is your word that is true and clear. And I thank you that it is your word that is capable of correcting and challenging us. And I thank you that it is your word that is true. Father, if you have stirred us this morning to worship you in a more God-honoring way, then all the praise be lifted to you. And as we consider, Father, who we are and knowing that we want to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, individually and as a body, we ask you to help us. Would you lead us and do the work that only you can do, that we would indeed become more like Christ, that we'd have the aroma of Christ, the mind of Christ, the love of Christ, but left to ourselves, Father, that can't happen, and so we're dependent upon your Spirit to teach us and to guide us. And so we ask you to do that. Use us this week for your glory. Teach us what it is to be true worshipers of the living God as we commit ourselves to you anew and afresh. In Jesus' name.